Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Marianne will be talking to Juliette Galatly this week. Juliette is, of course, the founder and director of Viva, which has been campaigning against animal agriculture and in favor of veganism for years and has seen some truly extraordinary success. She's an amazing woman. Yeah, she is indeed. I love this interview. On the bonus segment for this week, we'll be hearing more of my conversation with Juliet. And as always, if you're a flock By member, the way, can I just can I just tell you that I used to work for Viva. It was my first job in animal rights. It was very brief, but it was when there was an office in New York City. I think I remember that. Why do I remember that? Why was I in that it office? It was before I knew you. I know. Well, you were in that office because it was the same office as Farm Sanctuary's office. Oh, that's what it was. And, and, and it was about Farm two Sanctuary feet by took... four feet. It was the smallest yes. office I've ever seen. Farm Sanctuary took over the lease, and and then I worked for Farm Sanctuary in the same office. <laughs> so, anyway, I love I've loved Viva for a long time. When I first went vegan, Viva was one of those big players in my life. And I'm when I say I worked for Viva, that was like over fifteen years ago. It was a long time ago. I, I've never I never connected with Juliet, but I've always admired her from afar. And I'm so excited about this interview and the flock content. Yeah, she's very dynamic. Speaking of the flock content, if you're a member, you'll get that link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after the podcast goes up. You can always find it on the flock Facebook group. If you're not a member of the flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate, or you can join for $100 a year. And that's particularly good right now because every donation is being tripled. That's right. Between now and the the end end of the year. year. Yeah, all donations are being tripled. Thanks to our our Barnyard benefactors and an anonymous donor are all coming together to triple your donations. And so we're hoping to raise $20,000 from you, our listeners and our our supporters and our flock. from each of you. No, from each of you. Not from each of you. (laughs) That would be great. From each of you. We could do the show from the Bahamas. No, that's not where the, the, the funds don't. They don't pay for our vacation, Marianne. That's not going to help anyone. No, the we actually are on a shoestring budget, but we do have an editor and we have a director of operations. We have a researcher. We have a media coordinator. We have audio people. We have social media. Cons- like it's not nothing to produce. They're not. They're not full time. No, they're not full time. But don't we, panic. We are very grateful to all of you for being able to help to support independent media, especially pro-animal vegan media, and especially at a time like this when everyone, especially Marianne, is completely panicking. Uh, I should say, actually, that we're recording this on on Monday, and I know you don't like it when people know that, but we, we are recording this on Monday so that we have time for the editor, Eric, to be able to edit the episode, but we currently don't know what, what happened or what's going to happen with the election. No, no I, I am sick with anxiety. Yeah. I'm just sick with anxiety. I, 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 I think that I envy all of you to, who are listening because you know what happens, but maybe you don't know what happens. Probably not. And who knows what has happened between now and then. So I don't know whether I envy you or not. And I'm not making any sense. And and you'll just have to bear with it. her. That's fine. So I do want to mention that if you are able to, in these difficult times, become a member of the flock, then not only do you get that bonus content that we just talked about, as well as to an invitation to join the flock Facebook group, but we also have still going strong our flock Friday Zoom calls at 4 p.m. Eastern on Fridays. 
last week we celebrated my birthday and I have to say it was so awesome. And I was really surprised because you all put together some really beautiful, uh, some beautiful little things for me. And it felt like a real celebration. Yeah, no, that flock call was amazing. Yeah. It was Jen Riley who arranged it all. And yes. all of the flock members were just lovely. I I felt kind of good just by association, but you must have felt really good. I felt loved. You know, COVID birthdays are weird. And my birthday was not only wonderful because of our Flock Friday, but it also it kickstarted our end of year fundraising for this year. But I, I, I felt connected. Like, I feel so connected to our Flock. Like, we actually had a birthday party on Zoom later, and I, I really enjoyed it as well. But I got to tell you, I was really looking forward to that Flock Friday call because... I want during these anxious days and these anxious times to surround myself with people who embolden me and inspire me and with like goodness and warmth. And and anyway, so if you are a member of the flock, then I hope you join our flock Fridays and you, you can you can learn about them because a link will be sent to you in your email and you can learn about it on the flock Friday. Uh, I mean, on the flock Facebook group. So anyway, I am excited about this interview with Juliet, but I do feel like we should just take a few minutes to just check in because I know you're you're feeling a lot of anxiety. Obviously, we can't go into the future and know what happens. And I'm feeling a lot of I'm sure everyone is feeling a lot of anxiety, but I have been uh, really enjoying those little things. And I think that that's important in a time of anxiety. I, 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 I haven't been enjoying anything. Well, there is I mean, no. There is no joy That's in my life. That's not true. Except a little, from, a little from Rose. But we also brought Kitchery over to your house the other day. You enjoyed that. I'm talking about the little things like Kitchery. And like my friend Linda made me a little birthday craft. And I just got it in the mail today. And it's like this little homemade little felt cat ornament that looks like my little kitty cat, Stella. And I was so moved by that, that like I was overcome with with joy and gratitude. Nope. Nope, you're not nope. feeling that? Nope. I mean, I'm not saying that this has been going on for months, but today, as we said, we're recording this on Monday. There is no joy in my life whatsoever except a tiny oh, bit Jesus from Rose Christ. because I have to say that because I love her so much. Okay. That's it. I, okay, like, that's like, fine. I don't think I've ever felt more... Anxious. I don't even know whether it's fear. It's just anxiety. It's like uh, my stomach hurts. I vey. You said that you saw a tweet that said having dusk at 345 was a nice touch which I think is pretty yeah, telling. No, that's the other thing. Yeah. Daylight savings time ended. Why do, why do they end it? Like, it's perfectly nice. I don't mind getting up when it's dark. It makes me feel special. It makes me feel like I got to jump on the day. Oh, I'm up already and it's still dark. And then at the end of the day, you have a little, now it's like I get up in the morning. I feel like the day is already proceeding without me because it's light out. And then at the end of the day, I feel like the world is ending. Okay. Well, it could all be, but all, we're here. We're here now, and oh, I, I am still... I totally agreed with that with that tweet. That having dusk at 3.45 was a nice touch. It's actually very funny. I don't know. I it mean, is. like, I feel you, and I can. you can be there. I'm not going to convince you otherwise. I think sometimes the best thing we can do for each other is, is say, yep, it's true. I, I'm not here to say anything other than... than it's okay to feel everything you're feeling right now and and we and and we'll get through together whatever it may be i think it's normal to feel what i'm feeling right now i think it is there are many many people who share it i hope that by the time you hear this you're feeling something better than this but you know the the other thing is is that this 
election holds so much portent and it's so important and there's so much going on. And no matter who gets elected, like our problems are not going to go away. You know, it's the animals are not going to really be helped that much. Our movement is not going to be moved that forward that much by electoral politics. It's still going to take enormous amounts of activism, personal, uh, personal persuasion, promotion of veganism. Uh, so the, the issues that we work on most of the time, everybody listening to this, I bet, you know, that's, that's even beyond what's going to happen in the election. All in all, it's really not going to change what we do that much. But I hope that, the, you know, that, that people will be elected in this election who will be a little bit more sympathetic to the horrors of factory farming and, and all of the issues that, you know, concern us so drastically and that we don't understand why nobody else seems to care. But, uh, but there's still going to be a lot of work to be done regardless. That's true. But we we knew that before and we know that afterwards. And I think you I hope that you can go slowly and and be gentle with yourself and pepper your life with like those little things. And I'm I, and be OK with where you're at, because I know you'll move through it and we'll collectively move through it as well. And we'll do the best we can because the animals need us to. I have my daylight thing on right now. The uh, lamp that helps with SAD standard uh, standard affective disorder. I was combining it with the standard American diet, <laughs> with the uh, <laughs> the standard American diet light. No, it's the it's that uh, seasonal affective disorder light. At the moment, it kind of is standard affective disorder. That's true. It is an affective disorder is pretty standard right now. There's a lot you're going through. A lot. Rose is Rose is very frail. The world is very frail, and AOC bought a puppy. Which is really unfortunate yeah. and very disappointing. Yeah. But, you know, actually, I was talking to my my friend before and she she was typing when I, I was like, hey, what are you doing? She's like, I'm looking up. I'm just Googling. What do you say to someone when they post on Facebook that they bought a dog? I don't know what to say, but I need to say something. I know. So we talked it through a little bit. I know. And I don't know all the answers. I like to pretend I do, but I don't know all the answers. But I do find that using I statements is very powerful, especially in moments like those. And like, you know, I was really shocked when I learned that for every dog, for every dog someone buys, an animal at the shelter will not have a home. I was very pleased to know that adopting a 13 year old dog from the shelter would fill my life with such richness and I didn't need to like breed. So maybe if we take that that kind of magic, that magic ingredient of of personal narrative and I statements as a way to change the world, then maybe we can, maybe we can change the world by being out there with our stories and, and with our little doses of hope here and there. And if you're not in that right now, that's fine. That's really fine because, you know, like I've talked about in the past collective care, which is, I think I mentioned it last week, which is Patrice colors from black lives matter, founder of black lives matter who she came up with that term is that we hold each other up. So I'll hold you up right now. You don't have to hold yourself up and, and it's okay to feel like shit because sometimes it's, it's called for. Well, one thing that can make me feel better is, is hearing about vegan businesses. And that's one of the reasons why we talk about them every week, because these are people who really are, you know, doing positive things that are going to change the world. So let's talk about uh, a couple of really outstanding. Uh, they're not businesses I have previously been 
familiar with, but they both sound outstanding. This is part of our Hannah Supports Vegan Businesses, which is a program that we started at the beginning of COVID, which is to just bring attention to these businesses. So yeah, start us off. Liquid gold vegan cheese sauce. Does that just like, do I need to say anything more? No, we're good. good. (laughs) The name of the company is Fine Apple Vegan, which is just like pineapple, only with an F as in Frank. And according to their website, it's bold, rich, flavorful, and versatile enough to be used as a simple cheese dip or for an entire meal. It's coconut milk based. Yum. I love coconut milk. I hate coconut water. So I'm so glad it's not coconut water based. It's coconut milk-based. It's free of gluten, soy, nuts, sugar, and dairy. And it is a great option for people with with allergies or intolerances and for people with an intolerance to cruelty. And it ships across the U.S. Um, So their Instagram and YouTube channel is at Fine Apple Vegan. You can go there for recipes. You can check out their website, also fineapplevegan.com. And if you happen to take a few, this is what they say, if if you happen to take a few selfies of you enjoying liquid gold, tag Fineapple Vegan with hashtag uh, liquid gold, they will share your photos and that will make them super happy. And, you know, what is life about these days other than trying to bring a little happiness? Well, it's certainly about vegan cheese sauce. Yeah, vegan cheese sauce should bring happiness to anybody. So the founder is named Brittany. She's a black vegan woman who wants to change the world. And she says that her main focus is to show people that being vegan doesn't mean you have to sacrifice flavor doesn't mean that you have to eat grass all day. And whether you're already vegan or a curious carnivore, all are welcome. Mm, Sounds amazing. Except in my house. Vegans only. Damn it. Sorry. I don't mean that. Yeah, I do. Okay. The next business is vegan gift shop. Gift giving season is almost upon us. Isn't this a great idea? Yeah, I love it. I've done a lot of my shopping already just because I've been like anxiety shopping. And I mean, lucky for you and those in my life, I'm doing anxiety shopping for others mostly, but also for myself, I admit. Vegan Gift Shop provides fine quality, cruelty-free products that come from established and respected suppliers. It's owned and operated by people who share your concerns for the planet, for the animals, and for health. Their goal is to make it easy for you to shop with compassion. All of the products on the website were carefully selected to make sure that they are vegan and they're proud to be affiliated with the with their partner site and one of our very favorite sites in the whole world, which is Happy Cows Vegetarian Guide to Restaurants and Health Food Stores, which I think most people know is at happycow.net or there's an app. Anyhow, for the vegan gift shop, you can check out their selection of gift baskets and vegan cookbooks and superfoods and chocolate and wallets and clothing and more at vegangiftshop.com. Their suppliers ship within the U.S., while some also ship to Canada and or international addresses. I think that that is so very cool. And I'm going to definitely do a lot more of my shopping there because it's nice to stay in, as Jane Velez Mitchell calls it, the veganomy and support that. So speaking of which, I think it's time to get to our interview with the one and only Juliette Galatly. Juliette Galatly founded Viva, which you can find at viva.org.uk in 1994. Viva, in addition to giving me my first job in animal rights, is a vibrant vegan and animal rights campaigning charity based in the UK and has since been joined by its sister group, Viva Poland, as well as its health arm, Viva Health, which concentrates on campaigning on health and nutrition. Juliet has investigated many factory farms and exposed devastating animal cruelty and has also instigated the very first vegan festivals in the UK. 
In particular, she'll be chatting with Marianne about Viva's hugely impactful investigation of Hogwood Farms and the documentary film that arose from it. Stay tuned for a really dynamic interview with a very dynamic woman right after this. We're excited to announce Encompass Essays, Pursuing Racial Equity in Animal Advocacy, a collection of essays written by farmed animal protection advocates who are committed to exploring and prioritizing racial diversity, equity, and inclusion as we work to create a more just animal protection movement. The authors, myself included, are a group of advocates who wish to document our stories and processes in an exploratory space from which we can grow. And we would like to hold ourselves and our peers accountable and create new ways forward. Encompass Essays is a collaboration between our henhouse, Encompass, and Sentient Media, and I'm truly honored to be the editor on this essay collection. The only way to be an effective animal activist is to centralize anti-racism around our advocacy. Encompass is a nonprofit working to make the farmed animal protection movement more effective by fostering racial diversity and inclusivity. Sentient Media, where the essays are rolling out, is a robust digital platform that reports on animal agriculture and its impact on the world. This essay collection is providing a new and necessary way forward, one in which we can all be held accountable for doing exactly what I just said, for centering our anti-racism in this fight to end the exploitation of animals. Beyond the digital presence for Encompass Essays, which includes plans for audio versions of the essays, which will air here on the Arhenos podcast next year, Lantern Media will be publishing an anthology version of the collection in both hard copy and digital form. Down the road, we will parlay the work of the collection into a springboard for digital panels, collaborative discussions, and hands-on trainings. And in addition, the hope is that this is the beginning of a three-part series where the authors will revisit our anti-racist work and provide updates to be published in future follow-up collections. So you can learn more at sentientmedia.org slash encompass dash essays. Again, it's sentientmedia.org slash encompass dash essays. Welcome to our hen house, Juliet. Thank you very much for inviting me on. I'm very excited to talk to you because I think a lot of our listeners, we have listeners in the UK, of course, but most of our listeners are in the US and, and may not be as familiar with Viva's work as some other people. And I'm very excited to hear about Viva's work in general and particularly about this, the Hogwood campaign and film, which we're going to be talking about later in the interview. But since they may not be familiar with Viva, can you just kind of give us a quick overview of what Viva is and and what it does? Yeah, sure. I started Viva 26 years ago this year. In fact, this month, my goodness. And I started it because nobody back then in Britain was banging the drum loud and proud for animals. And we had the vegan society and the vegetarian society working on those issues, but they were not campaigning organizations. They were much more food organizations. And so having become the director of the Vegetarian Society, I decided it was time to leave and set up a campaigning vegan organization, which focused on what was happening to farmed animals. And that is what we did. We were at the forefront of investigations. And as we've evolved and grown over the years, we have expanded into campaigning on health issues. We have Viva Health, Viva Planet, which is obviously looking at the devastation consuming animals is causing our world. 
And also we have Viva Life, which is all about helping people change. So those four big main areas that we've been working on for a long time. Yeah. And, and you've also, I know you've focused on food issues, and but you've also covered a lot of other issues. I guess that are, I mean, everything's sort of connected, but I know some wildlife issues and other things. But why have you focused specifically on animals raised for food? Were there other people doing the other kinds of work and this was something that that got left out? Yes, there were already organisations that were generalised animal protection groups, if you like. And veganism back then when we started obviously was not very popular in the UK at all. And I felt that somebody needed to really explain why it was absolutely essential that we nudge people in the vegan direction we have to go vegan, you know, to save animals, to save our home, the planet, and of course, for our health as well. So many complex issues. Um, and there are so many issues that, you know, are thrown up by consuming animals like antibiotic resistance, the fact that we're losing one of our key medicines, you know, there are so, so many issues. But nobody was really campaigning on those issues and bringing it together under the vegan umbrella in the UK. So I decided that's what Viva would do and that we would focus. So we set up our remit. And once you've set your remit up as a charity in the UK, that's really what you stick by. So we didn't widen it out to, you know, to lots of other animal cruelty campaigns because other people were doing them. And I wanted to really focus on what was in many ways the hardest issue because obviously people are quite resistant to changing their own diet. But I I felt the, the, the flip side of that coin is it's so wonderful working on people's diet because you can actually get them to change as opposed to other groups who, in my opinion, are in the unfortunate position of having to lobby parliament all the time, which is so frustrating. We can actually talk to people directly and empower them. Yeah, no, I think that's a really, really good point. I ever, Everyone's always talking about how individual change isn't enough, but it's a huge, I mean, it's a lot, and it's a huge starting point. You know, that's when, when you get somebody to change personally, they are on their way to changing things politically as well. So I think they just feed on each other, the personal and the political change. Well, our experience here is that without the individuals changing themselves, politicians simply don't change. And the politicians, sadly, lag way behind public opinion. So it's absolutely essential to change public opinion first in in most cases. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So... I want to get to, you know, there's lots of things that Viva is doing, as you spoke about. A lot of them are focused around food or animals raised for food. But the thing I really, you know, particularly wanted to talk about is this film. Well, both the undercover investigation and the film that came from it, because I think it's it's extraordinary, really extraordinary that this film has has had such a huge impact and that the investigation that it covered had an impact. And I think it's a really good way to highlight more generally the work of Viva. And and so this, the film is entitled Hogwood, and that was the name of the facility you were investigating as well. Mm-hmm. Just tell us how this investigation started. It started when a member of the public in the vicinity of that factory farm complained to us and they said it was particularly bad for various reasons. Then an ex-farm worker actually got in touch with us and divulged some information. And I sent an investigator in to have a look, and what he came back with were, was really shocking, and I've been investigating for a long time, so I don't, you know, I don't say that easily anymore. So I decided to go back in myself with a team and investigate properly, and we went in to this place. So it's in a place called Warwickshire near Stratford-upon-Avon, Shakespeare's country. And 
It was a large farm, what we call a mega farm in the UK. So one of the largest, all pigs. And at first I walked into this shed where there were usually in pig farms today, you have these corridors where you have the pigs on either side, basically in cells, let's call them. This was all the pigs were on one floor and they're about three months old. And I remember looking at the state of them already by three months old and in the distance, because there were hundreds in this building, was watching them. And this was about two in the morning. And it just struck me that none of them could sleep. They could never have undisturbed sleep because if they tried to, somebody was trampling on top of them. And I remember thinking, you know, this is a form of torture. And you don't read about this in leaflets on factory farming or see it in the videos. And it's really hard to get across to people sometimes what it's actually like for these very intelligent, bright, bright creatures to live in these conditions. And I walked into another shed, which was the opposite. It was huge, but there were barely any pigs in it. But the ones that were in there had just been dumped. And there were pigs with huge ulcerations going through to the bone and animals that were cannibalizing other animals. And it was just this weird dot building, like straight out of a horror movie with loads of God knows how many years of cobwebs. Very creepy. And then I went into another building where there was the more conventional gangway and opened the door and these animals had just been dumped in the gangway. They had no access to food or to water and they, one of them was just slumped against the side. Another little young one had some kind of neurological disease. And I just looked at the state of these animals and when our investigator went in, lots of adults had just been dumped outside, dead, I mean. And so it went on. It was just this tale of absolute, complete neglect where somebody had completely switched off to the needs of these animals in the most basic, basic human sense. And then we found out that they supplied Tesco and Tesco are the UK's biggest retailer. I, I want to get to the... To the the campaign, which was unbelievable, I have to say. But first, I just want to say that I've seen a lot of footage. You know, I try to avoid it, I must admit, because I, I don't when I don't have to watch it. This is very, very bad stuff. It was very hard to watch. The crowding that you're talking about was incomprehensible. I mean, the animals were on top of each other. They just lived on top of each other. So I just wanted to to say that I, you're not exaggerating <laughs> and I want people to watch this movie, but you know, I also need to forewarn them that some of it is very tough. But then when the film gets into the campaigns that you're talking about, when you found out that they supplied Tesco, which is this huge UK supermarket chain, it, it gets into the fact that the aftermath of this campaign, of this undercover footage was, was I thought was more shocking than the treatment of the pigs, if that's possible. It was just Orwellian. So yeah, can you start to, when you found out about Tesco, a very reputable, well, I don't know whether it's reputable or not, but it's a very big um, popular chain. What's, what did you decide to do? What, what was your idea about how you could approach this? And did you think it was going to be easier than it turned out being? I thought it'd be a lot easier, to be honest. And I don't say that easily either, because obviously it's not easy to change large retailers like that. But having been working in this sphere for a long time, Usually, if you investigate something and expose something that's that bad, they will, you know, roll over and say, okay, you know, fair cop, you know, we shouldn't have been dealing with this company. And I did think that that was what the result would be, that um, in effect would win, if that's the right word. And Tesco would drop Hogwood immediately, and they didn't. They did the opposite. They dug the heels in. And in fact, we had um, a vigil with a lot of local supporters and a lot of local villagers outside of the farm got a lot of public support 
And I remember in the UK, we have something called the National Pig Association, which represents all pig farmers. And they actually sent somebody to represent the farm. So they had their PR done for them. They had Tesco defending them. And we complained to Red Tractor. Now, Red Tractor is an assurance scheme, which is very popular in the UK. And if you see this little tractor symbol, it's supposed to mean that somehow the conditions are better for the animals that have been killed. Yeah, I mean, of course, we have the same thing here in, in the U.S., but I think Red Tractor is, is much bigger. I mean, everybody kind of knows what it is. Is that right? Yes, it is. It's, a, it's very common because it's used by the biggest supermarkets here. So it's very trusted. And, you know, and they, and they play on that, you know, the little tractor, the sort of iconic child image, you know. So they dug their heels in as well. And also, obviously, we complained to the government, relevant government departments and got nowhere in terms of any kind of prosecution. So basically, one of the reasons I wanted to make this documentary is because one of the most common questions you get from the public is, but it can't be as bad as you're making out because surely the government or somebody would close this place down. This can't be allowed. You know, we're supposed to be the most civilised nation on the planet. That's what our government tells us all the time. You know, this can't be real. And I wanted to explore that so that people could see what it's like when you, even when you find somewhere this bad, how difficult it is to actually get anything done. And that is quite shocking. And also what's shocking, I think you'll agree, having watched it, is that the vast majority of what you saw on that documentary is legal, totally legal in the UK. So that is how low standards are here for farmed animals. And that's really upsetting. And when we show members of the public from all walks of life they can't believe that. They just can't believe that this is allowed. So that's why we made the documentary, is to blow a lot of myths apart. And, you know, they dug their heels in, they put in writing that um, they would work with the farm and improve conditions, but what we had showed, it wasn't that bad, and somehow we were exaggerating. The farmer himself said that we were dumping. <laughs> it's just this ludicrous concept that every time you go in a factory farm, their answer is, oh, well, Viva are dumping the animals inside, you know, like we take unbelievable dead animals to each farm that you know it's so ridiculous as to be you know laughable really my my favorite comment from the owner of the farm was that he he had better conditions than most nursing homes it's not a good oh my god you know, it <laughs> makes you wonder what's going on in nursing homes doesn't it <laughs> say, it was not a good quote for the uk because we had loads of exposés <laughs> of nursing homes. <laughs> uh, yeah he did not show himself in a good light saying that you know instead instead of actually saying i'll look at this and you know we'll try and improve conditions he was trying to defend everything that he saw and saying it's not that bad and in fact you know even more shocking was the fact that dispatches which is a national television documentary here which you know is pretty well respected actually tried to defend the farm they actually took the hogwood campaign and produced the national documentary um, it was called The Truth About Vegans. So that kind of gives oh you hints, doesn't it, from the start, how biased it was going to be. And it basically tried to say that, again, it wasn't that bad. They tried to defend the farmer. They interviewed him. But fortunately, they did show Viva's footage in it. And that was enough to convince the public that we were not exaggerating in any way whatsoever. And in fact, they, the farm, had a huge backlash. It all went in Viva's favour and the pig's favour. The vast majority of public reaction was in favour of Viva exposing it. Well, you also had had good coverage from basically from the tabloid press. Is that right? So the press was sort of split. 
We did. We had from the, from a national press point of view, we, it was very sympathetic. And in fact, they went to the farm and they went to Tesco trying to push them to actually drop Hogwood. So on a national level, it it was very powerful indeed. And for some reason, because we've exposed, I say for some reason, because we've exposed a lot of farms over the years, obviously, but for some reason, Hogwood caught the imagination of the British public and our own supporters. And people did not forget Hogwood. They were like, they, they wouldn't give up. And Viva's a very persistent campaigning group. So we went back in. So the first investigation was 2017. We went back in in 2018. And to be honest, you know, the only thing that had changed, despite all the rhetoric, you know, from the supermarket saying, you know, it all improved and all the rest of it was that they'd spent tens and tens of thousands of pounds on security, according to them. They said £50,000. So it was like Fort Knox trying to get inside this place now. But you still managed it. I mean, you managed it two more times. We did. We still managed it. It was difficult, but we managed it. But the sad thing for the pigs was, you know, all this money spent on security just to lock these animals even further into the cesspits Mm. that they were kept in. And we filmed again, only this time we actually filmed more severe life cannibalism um, where an animal was in so much pain having her leg eaten alive that I had to stop the investigation and said, we've got to get the police and the RSPCA now. So in the the UK, we have a group called the RSPCA, as you know, that actually has the power to investigate animal cruelty, but they have sweet all power to do anything about it, to be honest. And they often pass things onto the government trading standards to actually bring prosecutions. And for farmed animals, I have to say, they're particularly weak. And, and, you know, nothing happened. You know, we made a vet go in, but it was an agricultural vet. And to be honest, agricultural vets, in my opinion, have completely sold out. You know, they get paid by factory farmers and they just go along with with the flow. And unfortunately, they're part and parcel of the system, enabling that system to continue. And that, in fact, the documentary explores that as well. We managed to get a vet, Dr. Alice Brough, who was a pig vet specialist. There's only 40-something pig vet specialists in the whole of the UK. And she was Young Vet of the Year. And she said when she went into pig veterinary school and became a pig vet that she wanted to try and improve things for pigs and realised after years of doing it that she just she just couldn't do it. They just kept... Every time she challenged the system or any um, veterinary branch that she worked for, they'd just tell her to shut up and put up. And to do these red tractor inspections that she was paid to do, um, basically the farm would just go to another vet if she said anything they didn't like because it's he who pays the piper and all the rest of it. So the whole thing is a complete stick. It's not. I, I did think that the, the fact that you got her was extraordinary and extremely valuable, it really was just icing on the cake sort of of the fact that you had this footage, which was truly horrifying. And then you had every single person in charge, whether uh, from the government to the RSPCA to the this red tractor outfit uh, to to the retailers, the people who were selling at Tesco and whatever, saying it wasn't happening. It was so, I used the word before, but I'm going to use it again. It was so Orwellian. It was just like, the pictures are right there in front of your face and they're saying it's not happening. You also put some hidden cameras in too, didn't you? Yeah, so so we had, each time we'd investigate and we we were continuing the campaign, we were not going to give up. And we had what's called day of action. And that's when we call our local groups and supporters to go outside a Tesco store all on the same day so that you've got the maximum impact and it got huge media coverage again huge social media coverage so the whole thing was gaining traction but Tesco would still not give in and Red Tractor still would not suspend them it's crazy 
<laughs> it's just crazy. I mean, absolutely crazy. And we went back in 2019 and this time we left hidden cameras and that was what made the huge difference because uh-huh. we left them in. It was very difficult because the place was still high security because we had to keep going back in to collect the, you know, the SD cards. And anyway, cutting it short, what we filmed were different men hitting different pigs in different buildings. So they, they couldn't even say that was just one aberrant case. It was clearly a routine way that they treated those animals, that they would just hit them. And Tesco were just embarrassed, basically, into dropping Hogwood at that point. We got um, one of the biggest paper, well, no, the biggest paper newspaper in the UK to cover the story. And they went to Tesco and said, right, we're covering this now. Um, What do you say to, you know, these pigs being hit in this way? You know, abject cruelty. The paper did not hold back on the words that it used. Very powerful headlines. And Tesco said, "Okay, we're dropping, we're dropping Hogwood." And even more than that, who have not mentioned so far because nobody's heard of them, but they're really important. Was Cranswick Foods? Now they are the biggest pork supplier in the whole of the UK to various outlets. And Cranswick Foods dropped them and said, "We will never deal with them again." Now that was really important. And then, of course, Red Tractor suspended them finally because they couldn't really hold on off that point. My God, it it is. You know, you mentioned before how much the UK public are more than in many countries. They're really sympathetic to animal welfare, including farm animals. But they tend to just think that it doesn't go on here. This is like an American thing, or or other places in the world. But but UK, the UK has better standards. So why is this misconception so strong? And and do you think this this helped shift it that? that folks in the UK now recognize that they're not off the hook here. It's diff- It's not any different from anywhere else. It's an interesting question. And I think it's because in Britain, we went into the industrial revolution relatively early compared to a lot of other countries. And so we became what we thought of as civilized. And the laws that got passed for, you know, so-called pet animals were relatively advanced compared to many other countries in the rest of the world. That is true. And so there was more animal welfare protection in some spheres. But what got completely left behind was those poor farmed animals who were being factory farmed, which obviously, you know, really took a hold in the UK anyway, from about the 1960s onwards. And the the truth is that people, because it's what they eat, and we're so brainwashed into thinking that it's normal to consume animals in whatever form, people are much more uncomfortable with, I suppose, confronting what happens to those animals because they are part and parcel of that cruelty. You know, people who consume animals don't want to voice it in the way that I am but really it is that simple it's with cruelty to you know circus animals or in vivisection you can kind of say somebody else is doing that and I won't play a part in it and it's easy to step outside that cycle of cruelty but when you're a part and parcel of it and you feel uncomfortable changing your diet because maybe you've got loads of misconceptions Perhaps you don't challenge what's going on as vigorously as you do in other areas where your conscience allows you to. But And the other thing with factory farming, of course, it's hidden. You know, largely people don't see what's happening inside factory farms and inside slaughterhouses. And the other thing is that we do, because of those reasons I've just mentioned, have this total misconception that Britain is ahead in every sphere where animal welfare laws are concerned. 
if you're in Britain, you never, for example, see stray animals. I mean, literally, it just does not exist. Whereas if you we go abroad here, which obviously we do a lot to other European countries, those problems still exist. So we have this false assurance that somehow we're better than the rest and we apply that to farmed animals where that's simply not the case and that's one of the reasons I wanted to make Hogwood the documentary because a lot of the documentaries coming out that we're watching here are American and what happens is British audiences just dismiss it as saying well that's not happening here. I have definitely heard people say that so many times that this is happening in America but it's not happening in the UK. I mean it, you just hear that all the time and of course it happens everywhere in the world. This is where food comes from mm. like like uh, you know one thing I'm really curious about you mentioned before about how when you finally broke through after your incredibly persistent sticking with this campaign and sticking with it. You finally broke through and got Tesco to fold and then Red Tractor folded and, you know, the government uh, was disturbed by it. But we don't really, and, and Hogwood, you know, got closed down. But that's not what all we want, obviously. Mm-hmm. What we want is for people to stop eating animals. Do you find that even though there is this move towards reform and there's this, this statement like, oh, we're not going to do business with that bad farm anymore when we all know that all of the farms are bad. Can you turn people to veganism instead of just turning them to think, well, the government is now taking care of this? Yes. Just let people are probably wondering why Tesco, by the way, dug their heels in because I certainly did. And by the way, it kind of half answers your point. It was precisely for what you just, um, you know, indicated. Tesco actually said to somebody behind the scenes, not directly to me, so this is being reported sort of secondhand, but a very trustworthy source, that if they dropped Hogwood, they'd have to drop the next pig farm they used in the next and the next... Um, because they were absolutely aware that pig farming in the UK is very low standards indeed and that they're all as bad as each other. So it's exactly what you say. The reason that we were persistent in terms of Hogwood was because we had to show that, you know, consumer power and people power actually did count for something. When you expose that level of cruelty, something actually has to be done about it and we can't just leave it there. And, you know, us all joining together and people supporting us worked. But you're absolutely right. Other pig farms are out there doing exactly the same things. And, and in fact, that's what we've got on to expose this year why it matters is because from a campaigning perspective people feel that they can actually do something about it when you win victories like that and you have to motivate people and make them feel it's worth campaigning and the reason it is worth campaigning because that campaign alone reached millions and millions of people and I mean many tens of millions of people and so it changed hearts and it changed minds because still in the UK the reason why people go vegan first and foremost is because of what happens to farmed animals how do they know what happens to farmed animals it's precise because of those kind of campaigns that Viva and others do. You know, the, you know, they don't magically hear about it. It's because of that kind of work um, and those kinds of exposés. So they are very, very, very important because they're the main trigger for people changing. I, I'm curious, you know, we have so many undercover investigations here and loads of footage has come out of it, but it's very, very hard to get this kind of traction. And you got traction before you made the film, so perhaps that caused there to be more possibility of getting attention to the film as well. But one of the problems is always how <laughs> in, re- in reaching people is people don't want to see it, you know, like and it's I don't want to see it. You know, who wants to see this? It's very hard to get people to watch. In fact, I, I there was some comment from the British Documentary Film Festival judges mm-hmm. that uh 
that it changed a few of our staff's food shopping habits. And I was thinking, well, they had to watch mm. it. You know, <laughs> They were required to watch it. Now, this is maybe a little different than the than what you faced in this campaign because there had been a lot of press attention that you had managed to get, so people might have been more focused on the film. But, but where? How do you do it? How do you strike that balance in making a film like this to show enough so that people know how awful it is without making them just turn it off? Yeah, it, it is. It's a challenge because people don't want to be confronted with cruelty. And the way that we did it with Hogwood was to hopefully add enough intrigue and interest in the actual story themselves and the people who are talking to camera you know they hopefully are people find them interesting and what they have to say and the whole conspiracy theory you like about yeah. the industry closes together is interesting because it does impact on all of us doesn't it you know we all eat <laughs> we can't get away from that so it's really interesting to see how these major corporations and governments and assurance schemes obviously are talking behind the scenes and decide on a certain approach and the general public all of us want to be able to trust in authority it's a very difficult position to be in. but Believe me, we know about that right now in the U.S. We're aware of this problem. Yeah, and it's very unsettling. We, you know, we want to trust supermarkets like Tesco because they're the most responsible for the most food that is provided to UK citizens. We want to know that what they're doing is okay. And when they say they've been inside farms and everything's fine, meat eaters want to trust that. And suddenly the whole thing is just just imploding in front of us and the sad thing is i mean we just went into another farm this year just pre-lockdown and post-lockdown and again left hidden cameras and i went in myself and filmed for another documentary that's been made that's coming out next year not by viva by a television company and it's one of the worst places i've ever been in and anyway cutting it short one of these farms supplied another major supermarket called morrison's i just want to tell you this because it's important we photographed evidence of where these pigs were being slaughtered and that slaughterhouse only provides meat to Morrison's supermarkets and Morrison's boast about that. And Morrison's went to the media and to the public and actually said this farm does not supply us. My point is this is a major retailer that people trust and they're prepared to state barefaced lies and I think people wow. find that really difficult to get their heads around that, you know, like I say, they want to trust them. Uh, but we know very different indeed. That is the modus operandi. We'll just lie and give no comments and hope that the media will go away. And that's what they're prepared to do. That's that's extraordinary. That's so easily proven wrong. Mm. They just they just think that they they can operate with impunity. They don't, they apparently don't know you exist and that you're going to get them. Absolutely. <laughs> They're very naive. The other thing I wanted before we before we leave the conversation about Hogwood and its impact, I want like I watched this on Amazon Prime in the US. Like getting these getting this sort of thing on major streaming platforms is hard. How did you pull that off? I think that we basically, when you make a documentary, you have to go through certain agencies to actually, you know, get it shown. And basically, we went through um, the three main ones for the UK. One of them turned it down immediately. Um, another one had the opposite reaction that this was really topical, really important that people see it. And they believed in it and they pushed it for us. And 
yeah, um, we managed to get it on major platforms here. So that was fantastic. Well, yeah, it's great to have somebody doing that for you. That's that's rare, and that makes a huge difference. Uh, it's it's one thing to do the investigation, then to do a movie about it, but then to get the movie where anybody's ever <laughs> going to see it. These are all huge hurdles, uh, which you went over a lot of hurdles to get this done. It does seem like it's had an impact. I'm not going to give you 100% of the credit for the enormous growth of veganism in, in the UK, but you certainly deserve a lot of it. And with Tesco, I mean, I, you know, we don't have Tesco. I don't know that much about Tesco, but I keep hearing, seeing articles about Tesco has this product. Tesco has that product. Like they seem to be coming out with a new vegan product every week. That is one of the huge ironies is that Tesco now have just boasted that they've increased their vegan range beyond, and they've set these targets to increase it another 300%. And they actually said to save the environment that we have to move the population towards a plant-based diet. And there they were, you know, arguing with us not that long ago, <laughs> over, you know, over factory farming of animals and defending it. Yeah, it is quite ironic. <laughs> well, I'm sure the fact that they lost so big and rather and looked rather bad, and they know that these exposés are going to continue and are going to reveal the exact same thing that you revealed. I'm sure that had, has had an enormous impact. And so anyone who says that this kind of thing only pr promotes welfare and not veganism, I think is clearly wrong. Tell us a little bit about what's going on with veganism in the UK. Ah, oh, well, veganism, I mean, there's a tangible change like there is in many places in the world, thank goodness. I mean, the growth has been huge. We did a big survey of about 3,000 people and one poll did one for a major supermarket across all the different supermarkets. And what they found was that still people going vegan mainly for animals, like I said. Um, but the interesting change is that the environment is starting to overtake health as the second reason, because traditionally here, health has always been second. So people are waking up to the fact that actually by consuming animals, we are destroying other animals, i.e. wildlife, very much so, and the links with climate change. So here, about 13% of the population is vegetarian or vegan, about 10% vegetarian. That's about 7 million people here, and about 2.2 million people are, are vegan. So that's a massive increase over the last five years. It has exploded. And for anybody that knows the UK, you will know that literally just a handful of years ago, let's say five years again, you were going to national restaurant chains and having the token gesture vegan option if you were lucky. You know, vegetarianism was very popular then, of course, but not veganism. Today, they are falling over themselves to compete with whole vegan menus. The, the whole playing field, the whole feeling, it's very tangibly changed. And as you just said, Tesco are actually trying to outbid other supermarkets. They're actually arguing with each other of who provides the most vegan food. So it's an extraordinary change, especially in the last two years, um, which is, you know, you can't quite predict when these things are going to happen, but it's not going to stop now. And one of the reasons is that the meat industry itself, for the first time, really, if you read the meat industry news, the industry news, um, they're saying that the consumer will not stop decreasing its consumption of animal products to save the environment. So it's the environmental issues that are really starting to concern these big corporations and they're, they're prepared to actually say that now. So that's a, a huge change. Yeah, I, I actually think that one of the reasons, like even in the UK where it's considered very, very legitimate to argue about animal welfare, I mean, people respect that as a legitimate political issue to some extent, at least more than they do here. Even there, the focus on the environmental concerns is both 
a sign of the increased panic about environmental concerns. And also, you just can't fix the animal welfare problems. They're not fixable. Like, like you, 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 the only way you can uh, fix them is to go vegan because there's no decent way to raise animals for food. Absolutely. You know, when people talk about free range for the environment, going back to the environment, it's very useful to be able to use all the figures that are coming out now from scientific studies showing how free range farming is absolutely decimating the world's environment. And in fact, ironically, one of the biggest destroyers of wildlife. So by eating one type of animal, you're actually destroying loads of other animals that people care about. So whichever way you turn, the arguments have become very strong for veganism. With animal welfare, you're absolutely right. You know, the the, the only solution is to go vegan. But in some ways, that's its beauty because it's a very simple argument that people are taking on board and starting to understand there's still a bit of a gender difference here in that women are more outspoken about animal cruelty than men and men are more prepared to say they care about the environment than they do about animals and that that is just a very traditional sadly male stereotype that they're not allowed to show compassion for animals in the same way women are but i think the reality is that a lot of men you know certainly do care whether they're prepared to say it or not is a different choice and then yeah like in the states you've got that whole other age group perhaps an older age group who are looking desperately to save their own health and realize that they can't rely on somebody else and that you know in the uk our health system is under such huge pressure so they look for self-help and now what's coming up more and more and more is well look at your diet and veganism is being promoted so vigorously from that perspective as well. And then you've got little issues like COVID-19 playing into the whole mix. <laughs> there's, I have to say, there's no breakthrough on that issue here. I mean, there's loads of coverage of terrible, terrible problems in slaughterhouses, which are consistently called meat plants, mm. ironically, and no recognition, really. I mean, there's recognition that the working conditions are a severe problem, yeah. but none that the system itself is inherently a huge problem. Problem, um, and that the origins of the disease are because of exploitation of animals and the spread of the diseases as well. It's just, I, I hope there's more recognition of that in other countries. Yeah. Um, I mean, when you um, Google search for information on, for example, the wider issue of pandemics, the fact that factory farming is obviously going to be throwing out viruses, you know, because it's ideal conditions for those viruses to spread and mutate. There has been a fair amount on that. I actually got um, a leader comment, which is unusual. I don't get them that easily um, in one of the national newspapers on exactly that topic. And others have too had a lot of publicity on that. And a lot of organisations like Viva have all been hammering home on that. And it's, I have to say has had, I suppose the right would be a fair amount of publicity certainly not overwhelming but it 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 has reached you know a fair mm-hmm. audience we're about to do a billboard campaign actually where we are you know because obviously covid-19 is not going away so one of the billboards is on the fact that a vegan diet actually reduces your risk of severe covid because you're much less likely to have chronic disease and the other billboard is on the risk of factory farming and the link to creating future pandemics that's great you need to come here <laughs> we need some billboards <laughs> well you know you can have the artwork you just need somebody to pay for them to go up (laughs) (laughs) always the challenge well that is that uh, it sounds like you're totally on target and and you're clearly one of the major reasons why there has been as much breakthrough as there has been in in the uk and 
we need a lot more, but this is a great start. Both both the general work that Viva does and this film. Well, the film, the campaign, and then the film both have had enormous impact. So thank you so much for doing them, Juliet. Really amazing work. And thank you for joining us today to tell us about it. Well, it's an absolute pleasure. Lovely to talk to you. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxieties are rising. First off is Angie Krieger uh, from the Pearls and Pork column on meetingplace.com. The name of this particular entry is Elevating the Lesser Beast. Angie Krieger is in love with herself. There's no doubt about that. And she starts off by saying, I am a self-proclaimed nerd. Now, don't you know that she just already, don't you know that she just really doesn't think that? And this is her reason for thinking so. My uncle teases me for this and has often shared with me his memory of how I was reading the newspaper by the time I went to kindergarten. (laughs) Oh, Angie, weren't you just the brightest little thing? Anyway, she's talking about pigs because that's what she talks about. She loves to, she loves to eat them. And if you have read any of those books, she says, referring to the Little House on the Prairie books or watched the series, you will recall the importance and celebration around butchering the pig every fall. I don't really remember that. Uh, It was such an important event for the family, not only providing nourishment for the better part of the year, but also benefiting the family in other ways by using nearly every part of the animal. And I actually don't remember that. I, I wonder if there was any sensitivity within those books about the fact that they were Killing an animal. I bet there was, but I'm not sure. So uh, she's wondering when there these wonderful stories. She doesn't have any sensitivity around it. These wonderful stories about butchering the pig. Uh, that pork has fallen out of favor. I didn't know pork had fallen out of favor, but apparently Angie is worried that the pork industry is not making enough money. And so uh, she's pointing out the consumer perception of pork in the U.S. is low since she's just been reading this book called Lesser Beasts by Mark Essig. I am not familiar with the book, but she thinks it's great, almost great, because it ha- talks about why why pigs have a kind of troubled relationship with being eaten by humans <laughs> or whether humans have a troubled relationship with eating pigs. And one of the reasons is that Pigs were kind of the garbage dump. They were used to keep villages clean by eating leftovers, garbage, even feces. And so they were an important part of people being able to live in these communities. But, you know, it made eating them perhaps distasteful to people, unfortunately. I don't think people find it that distasteful anymore. But she thinks that's maybe the reason why perception of pork isn't as lovely as perception of other dead animals. She realizes that they, they're not going to turn this perception over overnight uh, that this idea that people have uh, the idea that pigs are dirty, but, you know, they should be working on it. And, you know, she then has to salute the fact that there are some cultures that that have serious taboos around eating pork. She's not going there. She doesn't want to sound anti-Semitic or anti-Muslim, I'm sure. 
So she leaves them off the um list. I see you, and I respect your choices, says Angie. Her marketing efforts are not intended to change your minds. But she wants to change the minds of the billions of other people who don't have particular religious restrictions, but uh, still aren't eating enough pork to make her and her cohorts in the industry as rich as they want to be. But here this is the part I love. As I reached the end of Essig's book, as I mentioned, I'm not familiar with that book, I became frustrated. For all the amazing history he recounted about the pig, I feel he got the modern story wrong. I disagree that pig farms are bad for the environment. And better yet, I have data to prove they are not. Uh, yeah, Angie Shore, <laughs> whatever. I disagree that the pork industry is contributing to global warming without looking for solutions. I don't even understand what that means. Does she think it's not contributing to global warming or that it's uh, doing so, but it's not looking for solutions? I don't know. Anyway, who cares what she thinks? And I disagree that the animals we are raising would be better off roaming the land as they did in the days of Laura Ingalls Wilder. Did, did they roam the land? I mean, I don't know. Maybe they had like a tiny little yard to be in instead of being trapped in a factory. But, uh, you know, I, I, I don't really know a lot about old pig farming days. And I doubt whether all of the, she's really covered all of the reasons people are reluctant to eat pork. Maybe because it's disgusting to eat the flesh of a, of a lovely creature. Anyway, is climate science really real? Depends on who's behind it. Oh, this is from Beef Magazine. And uh, is, don't you just want to give yourself hearing that, hearing that title? Are they actually still contending that climate science, global warming is not real? Among the political talking points that has been spouted during this presidential campaign is that, quote, science is real. And it is, or at least real science is real. There's, there's a smart statement. However, quote-unquote science advocated by activists and politicians is suspect. And you can tell that they don't agree with science, can't you? And its true objective is in pushing an agenda, not in seeking the truth. Well, then it's not science. Like, what kind of point are you making here? The point they're making is that it's really great to have all these cows in the world uh, belching out methane because... Ruminant animals certainly produce methane, but facts are facts. Estimated enteric methane emissions have increased since 2000, but the global cattle population has remained constant. So much for the cows are the cause argument. This is like the most ridiculous statement I've ever heard. Like, like maybe if the global population has remained constant, the amount of methane being produced by the global cattle population has remained constant, and there are other sources that have increased methane emissions. It doesn't mean that the enormous amount produced in the past and currently by all those cows is irrelevant. It just means, assuming this is even true, it just means it hasn't gone, you know, that that part hasn't hasn't increased. It doesn't mean we can tolerate the amount that it is. It's like, like you get it? <laughs> why is this? Why could this be hard to, to understand? This makes no sense whatsoever. So much for the cows are the cause argument. Hi. And then it goes on to talk about how wetlands are the real problem, but we shouldn't get rid of them because we need wetlands, so that's that. Global temperatures are rising. Are humans the main reason? That's a discussion for another time. Well, I, I really have to tell you uh, that's a discussion for right now because it's kind of an emergency, kind of. Like, I don't think we should wait for another time. Why don't you really tell us? 
are if humans are contributing if you think humans are contributing to um climate uh to global warming and 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 just tell us what you really think because people are starting to guess the fact that you might be wrong here and you might have an a, an ulterior motive all right meetingplace.com the animal agwatch column by Hannah Thompson women activists discuss legal strategies to target meat and animal ag and this is kind of fun because it turns out that the animal law conference this year, the one um, run by ALDF and held at Lewis, well, normally held at Lewis and Clark Law School at the Center for Animal Law Studies and held online this year. This is the first year, apparently, that Hannah has attended or that anybody from the Animal Agriculture Alliance has attended. And they did. And, you know, they're pretty upset about it. <laughs> they're pretty upset. Pretty upset that... Uh, that these activists are known for, quote, filing high-impact lawsuits to protect animals from harm. And if you're wondering about the conference organizer's stance on meat, note that per the, quote, sustainability policy, quote, all food and beverage items served at the event, which is held in person, are 100% plant-based. Is it just for sustainability? Isn't it also so we don't murder animals? Anyway, whatever it is, uh, that reveals that, that they don't like people to eat meat, which, you know, that's a bad thing, according to Anna. All right. She starts off, the, I'll just read the first paragraph, even though I've kind of delved into the article already. It probably isn't news to anyone that animal activists are well-versed in using the legal system in their quest to damage and ultimately end animal agriculture and meat consumption. As we've seen many legislative efforts aimed at making production more costly and less efficient, such as California's Prop 12, as well as the recent round of nuisance lawsuits targeting hog farms in North Carolina. Reading Canada always makes me feel better. She thinks we're so powerful and so successful. So, you know, maybe I shouldn't get so down all the time. Anyway, uh, she also, rather than, rather than, you know, killing herself, she's just put down some quotes that should strike fear into the hearts of uh, the, the readers of her column um, in the meat industry. And I'll just read a few of them. These animals, as many of you know, are subject to really near unimaginable cruelty, intensive confinement, mutilations, horrible living environments, dirty, unsanitary living environments, inhumane transport, and finally painful slaughter. And these animals receive some of the fewest legal protections of any animals on the planet. They are often exempted from state animal cruelty laws, and even when they are covered, enforcement of those laws is often very minimal. shouldn't say who said that, but it's a really nice summary, wouldn't you say, of... of the, the disaster that we're living through. Another speaker said, factory farms are horrible places and they cause immense suffering in animals. And by causing animals to suffer, we cause ourselves to suffer. Then referring to E. coli, salmonella, drug-resistant bacteria, all of it. Stuff that you've heard. 96% of Americans think that animals deserve legal protection from cruelty. If you can think of anything else that many Americans agree on, I would love to hear about it. Apparently, great speakers at this conference struck fear into the heart of Hannah. And so she uh, she ends with this, which I think is a really note of hope, actually. And she ends, she is talking about her hope. Her hope is that your company has some good attorneys on staff to prepare for ongoing legal challenges posed by activist organizations. Unfortunately, as these quotes demonstrate, simply being in the business of meat production makes you a target. Amen. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. If you like the podcast, and we hope you do, 
We're asking for your support for our end-of-year fundraising. We're excited to announce that if you contribute between now and December 31st, your donation will be tripled, dollar for dollar, up to $20,000. That means with your donation, plus our Barnyard benefactors and an added boost from an anonymous donor, we're hoping to raise $60,000 total for the year end. That's $20,000 from the Barnyard benefactors, $20,000 from an anonymous donor, and $20,000 from you, not not you alone, but like the collective you, our listeners, our, our supporters. And if you're not already part of the flock, we invite you to join for $10 a month or $100 a year. You'll get some really cool perks, including weekly bonus content. And it's really good, really good. Access to our private flock Facebook group and an invitation to our weekly flock Friday Zoom meetings for a fun and engaging time. Lots of conversations with me, with Marianne, and others in the flock, including special guests and some people who you've heard on the podcast and have agreed to join us for these intimate conversations. Plus, if you donate $100 or more, I will send you a personalized video message to show you my undying love and gratitude. So if you appreciate our hen house and if you believe in our mission to effectively mainstream the movement to end the exploitation of animals, if you find community and solace in our shows and our resources, and if you believe in the change-making power of indie media, please make a donation before December 31st, and your donation will be tripled. If you donate $10, it'll count as 30. If you donate $100, it'll count as 300. Those are my stellar math skills. Contributions of any amount are greatly appreciated. So to support us today, visit ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Again, that's ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Another great way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And we do get those donations. So thank you for those of you who do use Amazon Smile and who do have Our Hen House as your selected charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. Tell your enemies about us. Whatever. Tell everyone about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, and to composer Michael Herron for the music. Thank you to Podcast Haven for their work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez. We will be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget also about our sister production, The Animal Law Podcast. Subscribe to that too. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you're in the flock, keep an eye out for the bonus content coming on Tuesday. And remember to be safe out there. Social distance, stay home, wash your hands, and listen to podcasts.